Hey listeners, Dr. Taryn Marie here from Flourish or Fold Stories of Resilience. If our podcast speaks to you, consider leaving us a warm review at the top of the page on Spotify or at the bottom of the page on Apple Podcasts. Your reviews and opinions mean a lot to us, and it allows us to reach more good folks just like you. All right, now on to the show. Welcome to Flourish or Fold, Stories of Resilience. I'm Dr. Taryn Marie, and on this series, we have the opportunity to hear from well-known people who tell their often surprising, lesser well-known stories of resilience. Welcome back to Flourish or Fold, Stories of Resilience. This is season two, where well-known people have the opportunity to share their lesser well-known stories of resilience. Today, I have with me Michael Bungay-Stanier. Now, Michael is best known for his book, The Coaching Habit, which has sold over a million copies and has thousands of five-star reviews online. His latest book, How to Begin, helps people be ambitious for themselves and for the world to find their worthy goal, start something thrilling, important, and of course, daunting. I have admired Michael's work. He founded Box of Crayons, a learning and development company, and I've gotten to watch as his company has expanded and proliferated. He's trained hundreds of thousands of managers to be more coach-like, and his clients range from Microsoft to Salesforce to Gucci. Listen in now as Michael and I talk about some of the greatest challenges that he faced, including his road to becoming a Rhodes Scholar and his bestseller book that almost wasn't published. Now, I am so delighted to have my friend and colleague, someone I have admired for years in this space of training and coaching with me today. So all of you, I'd love for you to welcome Michael Bungay-Stainer. And Michael has had a tremendous journey in his career. There's so many things I could tell you about Michael. And what I'd love for you to know at this moment is he is the founder and former CEO of one of the most successful training and coaching companies called Box of Crayons. He's also the author of The Coaching Habit and has a new book out just recently published called How to Begin. Whoa. Woo! <laughs> it's so nice it's to see not. you holding that up, Darren. It's wonderful. Thank you. <laughs> I'll do it again. Yeah, it's like, you know, as an author, seeing your book in other people's hands is just this nice little rush you get because you spend a year writing it and another six months trying to get it out into the world. Yeah. And you're never quite sure who who reads it or whether it ends up anywhere, you're just going to put it on the water and you cross your fingers. So seeing people holding it up and talking about it and waving it around, it's a pretty cool moment. It's so exciting. It's so exciting. You know, one of the things I loved about this book, I didn't recall seeing in the coaching habit. I don't know if you can see it. There's this little guy right here. I was so happy to bring him in because I, I had developed him for a book that followed the coaching habit, which is called The Advice Trap. Uh, and I loved it. And I thought this is great. And it's a kind of nod to a favorite book of mine called Understanding Comics and whatever. 
But I realized that my books I'm coaching, I'm really not trying to be in the center of the book. I'm trying to be off to the side because coaching is all about putting the other person in the center rather than claiming the spotlight for yourself. Yes. But with this book, I really wanted to role model some of the practices in terms of how do you set a worthy goal and how do you figure stuff out? So it felt like it was useful to, to bring me in as a little character going, look, this is, this is my messy life. This is me trying to figure some of this stuff out. And so I got to, I got to bring the guy, my little icon back or my avatar back from where I parked him and went, this is the book you've been waiting for. So wow. it was great to have him come in. Yeah. I love it. I love it. Now you say that someone once said you were the bastard child. This is in the books, the bastard child of Pixar's Mr. Incredible and the Muppets Fozzie Bear. <laughs> yeah. And you mostly, go on mostly to say, Fozzie Bear. Mostly Fozzie Bear. <laughs> mostly Fozzie Bear. Okay. And you go on to say, honestly, there's no higher compliment. Wow. Mr. Incredible. I love I, it's one of my all-time favorite movies, The Incredibles, yeah. because I um I really feel a bit like the slightly overweight, slightly out of shape, slightly remember the glory days, Mr. Incredible, yes. trying to do his best, needing actually needing people around him to actually get him through things. So I just had a great deal of kind of love and sympathy and empathy for who he was. Um, and also just Fuzzy Bear going, look, I'll do anything for a laugh. I'm not very funny, but I keep trying. So I love his, his <laughs> persistence. I love it. Now, one of the first things about this book is you say, when my laptop starts up, it displays a date, September 15th, 2043. Mm. It's a destination. <laughs> my death. It's a, a technique I heard from a guy called Kevin Kelly, who's known for being the founder of Wired Magazine and the like. It's this countdown clock. But, you know, it goes way back to that. I mean, it's a fairly well-known Buddhist practice to kind of, you know, sleep in a coffin as a way of just going, look, we're going to die. Make the most of this life while you got it. Well, actually, let me ask you this. You know, I know you're known for the kind of the five practices of resilience. Mm -hmm. How is it useful to kind of connect to your mortality as a way of nourishing or nurturing your resilience? I'm sure there's got to be a connection. Mm, that's such a great question. I think you just went from podcast guest to podcast interviewer, <laughs> which I love. There's so much fluidity in our relationship, uh, which I think is fantastic. And of course, you ask the best questions and no one has ever asked me this question before. Right. right. So good. You know, there's always kind of two sides to these things, right? It's the, you know, for me personally, and then I'm also sort of like scanning my brain for like, what is the sort of literature? Yeah. What does yeah. the research say on this? You know, for me personally, what came up when you asked me that question is when I was in high school, I had over the course of my high school career, those four years, I had three people that I knew, you know, pretty well or quite well um, pass away from car accidents. Wow. And the impression that that had on me in my early to late teens was when you're a teenager, right? And the mm. research sort of sort of shows this, right? Is there's a, an invincibility complex, right? A sense that, you know, this life thing is not actually, you know. Yeah, I'm immortal. That's right. So basically, I'm immortal. That's why, I'm a, that's why young men die in car crashes. 
because yeah. like, I just drive fast because, you know, what could possibly harm me? Yes. What, what could possibly go wrong? Yeah, right? exactly. And so for me, it really impressed upon me the reality that this life thing that we've been granted is actually terminal. Right. And what that did, um, you know, we talk about this notion of, of sort of scarcity and abundance. However, I think in this moment, when I think about the scarcity of time, right, when I really sort of came face to face and have continued to come face to face with the limited nature of, of what it means to be alive on this planet, yeah. then what that does for me is it motivates me to do and to be more and to, you know, really squeeze the, the juice, mm-hmm. if you will, out of each day, each relationship, each experience, because I don't know, you know, when or if it'll be my last. Yeah. There's something similar for me, I think, as well. There's something about, first of all, spend time figuring out what's the right work to be doing, mm-hmm. you know, the right life to be living. Mm-hmm. And then um, I think once you figure that out, um, to kind of keep committing to the process of, of living it or doing it. You know, um, I was reading this morning about, I was reading a book called Let My People Go Surfing by the founder of Patagonia. Mm. And uh, he had an, he had a throwaway line going, you know, just like with Japanese, just like with Zen archery, you set your goal, then you forget about the goal, and you focus on the process. Mm-hmm. That took me a bit down a bit of a rabbit hole around how do people talk about that? And it's true that in Zen archery, there's a sense of I, I won't remember the exact word for it, but it's um, you know you you aim, but your aiming is all in the process. It's all about how your feet are and how your is held and how your your posture is and I don't I don't know anything about shooting arrows so I'm running out of words at this stage but um I did love that sense of okay so if I'm not worried about really whether I hit the goal or not I'm, I'm just worried about do I have the right process to draw and release an arrow that feels that I'm more likely to be you know preserve keep going because it's it's a commitment to a process rather than being blown left or right by how the outcome's going. Mm-hmm. 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 Maybe I don't know. <laughs> I'm fu- I'm fumbling around in the dark here. Yeah, it's interesting. So what you're saying is, when you think about that destination, mm-hmm. which is the projected date of your death. Yeah. If that's the destination or the target then you're sort of releasing that and focusing on the process that exists between now and then? Yeah. I mean, part of what I like about the Kevin Kelly article that gave me this idea of the countdown clock and my death date and all of that is he also says, you know, broadly speaking, you've got space for five, uh, one big project every five years. Mm. I'm like, okay, so according to this, and it's just a made up date, but it's, you know, plus or minus true. I've probably got four or five or maybe six big plays left. Mm. What am I going to, how am I going to play that? Mm-hmm. You know, um, there's a, a quote from a poet, T.S. Eliot, who says our, our life is measured out in coffee spoons. And that feels like it's true. You know, and we, we can we get so caught up in the, the, the minutiae of it all. And they're like, it's a teaspoon here and a teaspoon there. 
if you step back and go five five big plays, what are my five big plays between now and death? Mm-hmm. And then once I think what those are, how do I just focus on the drawing the arrow, releasing the arrow, rather than did I win or lose? Did I get it? Did I not get it? Do I mm-hmm. am I more or less famous? Am I more or less rich? Am I more or less high status or low status, whatever it might be? Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's that that tension between be ambitious for yourself and the world, but also then focus on the doing the work and become a craftsman in, in, in the art of the work. Mm. And I love that poem, by the way. It's probably one of my favorite poems of all time right. by T.S. Eliot, Love Song yeah. for J. J. Alfred Prufrock. Yeah. Uh, is it Alfred J. Prufrock or J. Alfred? I don't know. It, but you're right. It's a love song for Alfred something Prufrock. Yeah, well. I might have yeah. transposed it. It's beautiful. I'm not sure. yeah. It's beautiful. Yeah. Oh, so good. So good. So I love this posture of looking forward into the future and thinking about how that sort of destination date, if you will, motivates and inspires us. If we were to look back for a moment and to think about that challenge that you've experienced, or maybe it's a constellation of challenges that has most significantly formed you into the person that you are today, what has that been for you, Michael? Well, it's a, three things come to mind, and um, two of them are circumstantial, and one of them is uh, generic, genetic. Um, the, the 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 two circumstantial ones are, and I'll tell you, I'll tell you all three. I'll tell you three, and you can tell me which one is actually interesting for you to, to listen to. So, knowing uh, you, I'm going to be interested in all three. <laughs> so, opportunity one was um, applying for a road scholarship when I was at university, getting turned down, didn't even make the interview phase, which was disconcerting because they said everybody gets an interview, but I didn't, even I didn't get an interview. And then deciding two years later on to reapply for it and winning the Rose Scholarship, which then took me to England where I met my wife and kind of changed my life that way. The second thing would be um, trying to publish the coaching habit and spending three years and seven drafts pitching it to my publishing company and kept getting turned down by that. Mm-hmm. Um, and eventually deciding to self-publish it. Mm-hmm. And then that book going on to sell a million, cop- or million and more copies and become this best-selling book on coaching and how that changed a lot of things in terms of yeah, a lot of things. And then the third one is probably um, being born with a cleft lip and palate. So, mm. you know, that's uh, people who are listening and can probably hear a slight speech impediment that I have. So when you're born with a cleft lip and palate, the top of your mouth is open and your top lip isn't fully formed. So when you're, you're you know, less than two, you have an operation that sews up your top of your, your palate, the top of your mouth, and sews up your lip as well. But you get this kind of distinctive face, your slightly flat nose and a slightly flattened face. And that's been part of my identity. And my dad had a cleft lip and palate, and one of my two brothers has a cleft lip and palate. But that feels like it's also shaped me into literally and metaphys- metaphorically in terms of who I am. Mm. Those are three options for you. Which one feels interesting? They all feel interesting. I want to walk through all of the doorways. 
I'm sure you have time. I've got a I've got another meeting at the top of the hour, so I don't have time to tell all the stories. So, but where would you want me to start? If I had to pick one to begin with. Well, you know, what's coming up for me, because, you know, as we discussed, I'm in the midst of my book writing and publishing yeah. process. So this is pure, I won't say it's selfish. I'll say it's a self-full <laughs> ask, a self-full ask. Yeah, yeah. I'm always fascinated by all three of those stories. I'm super fascinated about these sort of stories of, you know, submitting seven drafts, not having a publishing company you know, or in the world yeah. of film, you know, and, and people sort of self-publishing their book or not having a, a studio pick up their film like Sylvester Stallone did with his yeah, first yeah. Rocky. And then sort of the script gets flipped, right? No pun intended. And all of a sudden, rather than being this thing that barely saw the light of the day, it becomes this sort of runaway Like, like Rocky, exactly. Well, so I had... um I had published a couple of books. Um, I'd uh, self-published a book called Get Unstuck and Get Going, which was complicated and difficult and was 15 years ago now. And it, it's like one of those kids' flip books, you know, where you have a ballerina's head and a scuba diver's body and a soccer player's legs. You flip them around. I kind of done that as a way of generating coaching questions and co- coaching insights. And that was great. Didn't sell very many copies because it was super expensive. I had to get it produced in China. and. Anyway, I wrote a book called Find Your Great Work, self-published it or was going to self-publish it. And it got heard about and then sold to a company called Workman Mm. really quickly. Like it was like less than two weeks from them finding out about it to us striking a deal. Hmm. And, it, you know, I I was like, this is great. But I'd said to them, look, I'm self-publishing this. And and I've got it lined up on the printer and I'm about to hit go on the printer. So you've got two weeks to make me an offer or we're done. They came around and I rewrote it for them and they published it. And, you know, it's done okay. It's 10 years old and it sold 100,000 copies, which is pretty good. Um, So I was like, this is great. They're a cool New York publisher. They have published some fantastic books and my favorite books like um, Austin Kleon's work, which he's, I mean, he'd be a great guest for you to have on the show, you know, show your work and, Keep going. His third book, Keep Going, is all about resilience. And I was like, okay, this is great. They're going to, I've got this new idea for a book and they're going to love it. So I went and I talked and I hired an agent and um, we tried to just weird conversation through my agent to the publisher and they just weren't that excited about it. I'm like, I think this is a good idea. And they were like, show us. So I, I wrote, I literally wrote the book. Mm-hmm. Here it is. And they're like, you don't like it. I was like, oh. <laughs> what? And then they're like, we go, we like you, Michael. So go and and try again. So I was like, okay. And actually this went on, I think, I think it was six or seven times. I literally wrote this book six or seven times. And I was just, they kept going, ah, you know, we like you, Michael, but we don't quite like this. Don't see the vision for it. And I, I was pretty low about it because I, I thought this was a good book and I just couldn't get them to be interested in it. And then I had a I had a moment where I was like, "Am I? Is there any there there, <laughs> or, am, or am I just deluding myself?" Mm-hmm. I'm like, you know what? I think I know what this book is. I, th- I really think it's like seven good questions and trying to unweird coaching. So I went back to them and I had found I'd kind of come back to myself and I'm like, you know what? Here's the book, mm-hmm. and this time it's either a yes or a no mm-hmm. because I can't be going back and forth forever trying to 
write the book that you can't actually describe, or you can tell me when I, when I don't write it. <laughs> um, so, and honestly, I was pretty sure that they were going to back me because, you know, I'd written a book and it sold a hundred thousand copies and I had a vision for it. And they're like, you know, you back the player. Anyway, <laughs> I was wrong. They totally called my bluff and they're like, okay, so we don't want this. I was like, I was so taken aback because I was so sure that they were going to say, okay, we, okay, we'll, we'll do it, Michael. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I decided to, you know, I sat with it for a while, like, is it, okay, maybe this is just a terrible idea. But then I was like, you know what, damn it all, there's something here, I'm sure of it. And so I decided to self-publish it, but I made a commitment to myself that I'd only self-publish it as a professional. Like, what would a professional do? Mm-hmm. My standard was it had to appear, you couldn't tell the difference between a regular published book and this, this self-published book. Mm-hmm. So what was powerful about that for me was I went off and I found partners to help me with it. I found a designer, I found a, an editor, I ended up finding a company that would help me with distribution and production and all the kind of boring stuff about books. Like do you have an ISBN number and is it registered in the library of Congress and all the stuff that I'm like, I don't know. And I don't care. Mm-hmm. And of course it turned out that this book, really was one of the things that changed my life. It sold 200,000 copies in the first year and it just keeps selling. And it's now just perpetually the number one selling book on coaching. Um, but it was really a moment of choosing to back myself. Mm. Knowing, I think, and this, this is part of the thinking that helped. I had an idea of what was at stake. You know, mm. what was at stake was $50,000 mm-hmm. and a chunk of time. Mm-hmm. And maybe a tiny bit of reputation, because honestly, if this book came and it wasn't successful, I didn't have that much of a reputation that it was going to damage me particularly. It was like nobody would have even noticed. Mm-hmm. But I was like, you know, even if I don't sell many copies of the book, I can use this as part of Box of Crayons and growing my training company. Um, so I feel like there's the, the downside is protected. So I'm like, you know what? I've got nothing to lose. I've got, I can scrape together the 50 grand to, to make this work and invest in it. And that just, that just opened doors. That was a, a, a big, a big, powerful, great decision. I mean, thank you workman for turning me down. That worked out really well for me. <laughs> mm. And, and tell us about, you know, I love this sort of phrase, right? It's not my own, but this idea of like this rejection became a redirection right? Or what you had initially seen probably when they said no was a setback that set you up tremendously for success. Right. You know, I'm, I'm, I am lucky that I am wired not to take very much too personally. Mm -hmm. So there's not to say that there weren't a few moments where I was licking my wounds, feeling a bit sorry for myself. But mostly I'm going, you know, they have just made a decision based on their business model. They're, they're actually not really a business book pub- publisher, although they say they are a bit. So actually I can see why they said no to that. It's just like they don't specialize in my market, which I'm trying to go for. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, you know, I'm always in a kind of slightly optimistic way going, okay, so that was just a no. No's are just part of the deal. No's are just part of the 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 way that you get towards a yes or or maybe through a definite okay it's definitely a no so what's mm-hmm. next mm-hmm. but i do think that that rejection 
forced me to ask the more interesting question, which is like, are you willing to back yourself on this? And deciding yes turned out well. Mm. In lots of opportunities where I'm like, do I back myself on this? And I'm like, probably not. This probably isn't <laughs> a very good idea. And I'm probably grateful I've walked away from most of those. Yeah. Are you, you know, it's so interesting because I think so many people are at this crossroads, right? Where someone in a pro- professional position, a position of authority, a position of call it knowing, right? In this case, sort of the book industry. And they say, no, they say it's not a good idea. And I love how you talked about, and then in that moment, you chose to back yourself. Do you have a sense of what that process was for you, where at that inflection point, you decided that this was a good decision and you chose to back yourself rather than listening to, say, the experts? Yeah. So it's it's a it's a weaving together of things, I think. The first is a remembering that nobody really knows what they're talking about. <laughs> publishers in particular, they publish you know, million, thousands, hundreds of thousands of books a year, and most of them don't go anywhere. So these are publishers who are going, we're placing a bet on this person and this person's book, and most of them are not successful. So I'm like, you, you don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> you don't know what success is and what success isn't really. You're taking your best guess. You've got biases. You've got some experience. But you know, you're not some sage or some, some oracle that has a way of predicting the future. Mm-hmm. Secondly, I'm asking myself, um, of all the things I can be working on, what moves me, what's the best contribution to my bigger goal, my bigger vision? So. I talk about it in a bit of a kind of abstract way. I say my my bigger vision is to infect a billion people with the possibility virus. Mm. Now, I came up with that 15 years ago when there wasn't a global pandemic and infecting people with viruses wasn't quite as kind of, you know, loaded a phrase as it is now. (laughs) But, But, you know, for me, that's a helpful way of thinking about the impact I want because it decenters me from what this is about. I'm like, I'm not trying to be a hero or be a guru or be in a spotlight. I'm trying to create ideas that spread and give people more courage to see the choices in front of them and make the bolder choice, the braver choice. So it's all guessing. I don't know. I don't know what's going to work and what's not going to work, but you know, I'm constantly asking myself when I think about, well, what's my big project for the next five years going to be? Like, what's my best guess <laughs> of all the things I could be doing? Mm-hmm. What might take me closest to trying to reach the unreachable target of a billion people? And I, I'm just, I got clear that writing a book is actually one of the better channels for me to com- communicate. Like, I'm a pretty good writer. I'm pretty good at translating complicated ideas and making them feel practical and tangible and useful for people. I have a voice, I have a sense of humor. So a book is actually a good format for me. And then the third thing in that was just what we talked about earlier, which is I I had a sense of what was at risk Mm -hmm. and I could afford to lose. Mm. I could afford for this to fail and this not to sink me or Mm -hmm. dent me. Mm -hmm. I would just lose time and money. Mm. And I could lose time and money. You know, one of my favorite 
poems, and I quote it at the very end of the, the book, is um, from a poet called Rilke. Mm-hmm. And it's called The Man Watching. And the last, the last line, he talks about wrestling with an angel. It's an amazing image. And he says, look, angels don't wrestle with anybody. They just wrestle with the people who are doing the stuff that matters. Mm-hmm. But the thing about wrestling with an angel is you always lose. Like nobody wins the wrestle with an angel. You always yeah. lose. But he says, and this is the phrase that I love, he's like, his, his goal is not to win. His goal is to be deeply defeated by ever greater things. Right. And I love that. And so part of, I didn't know this poem at the time, so I'm doing this in retrospect. But, you know, now and, and kind of then as well, I'm constantly asking myself, well, what's the, what's the ever greater thing that I'm wrestling with mm-hmm. I'm, that I'm prepared to lose with because I, I keep being defeated by ever greater things? That feels like a life well lived. Mm. Mm. Beautiful. Thanks. That's lovely. Ah, I love that image of wrestling with an angel. Yeah, it's so powerful. This this is such a this is such a great poem. It's mm. like he talks about you know when when you when you've wrestled with an angel, you can still feel where the angel's thumbs have pressed into you and marked you kind of scarred you in some way. Um, but that's that's part of the that's part of the nature of wrestling with an angel. You know, it's a it's a it's a great resilience poem. It's like, yeah, it's not about resilience is being able to be defeated by ever greater things. You can go, I'm still here. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Incredible. Now I know that you are quite familiar with the five practices of particularly resilient people, as you think about your experience with uh, challenge, change, and complexity, is there a particular practice that stands out for you or resonates with you in terms of how you effectively address challenge in your life? Well, I I feel like I have some things that I am more wired to do naturally. Mm -hmm. Like I am pretty good at possibility, possibility Mm -hmm. thinking. Like I'm just a, you know, I'm I'm like shiny object guy. I'm always going. Okay, so what are our options here? What, where else can we go from that? Mm-hmm. So that feels like it's um, that feels like it's kind of wired enough that I don't even really notice it. Mm-hmm. That's a learned practice and more a kind of way of showing up in the world at the moment, a, a habit or or something like that. The one that's the most interesting for me to wrestle with is the first practice around vulnerability. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, I've been in the self-help world for, I don't know, 25 or 30 years, some ridiculously long amount of time. And it means that I'm, I am fluent in the language of vulnerability, which is different from being vulnerable. <laughs> it means that I can talk a good game around vulnerability. And I, I can let people in in a way that would feel vulnerable to, I suspect, a bunch of people. Looks vulnerable from the outside. Isn't as vulnerable as I could be. So Mm -hmm. I think for me, the, um, you know, it connects in a little bit with that that Rilke quote, ever defeated by ever, you know, defeated by ever greater things. It's like, okay, so am I really brave enough to be defeated by ever greater things? Or am I just making it sound like I'm taking on something that I'd be Mm -hmm. happy to be defeated by, but I'm going to win anyway. 
Mm -hmm. So I think that's the thing that I wrestle with, which is like this, this struggle and what it means to keep reconnecting to vulnerability. And and it's also in part that I'm wired to be pretty self-sufficient as well. So Mm -hmm. there's a way that I'm like pretty self-contained, even whilst I know that to do the work I want to do, I I can't, I can't, if it's all me, then I'm just massively underutilizing who I can be in this world. I need other people to around me to elevate me. Yeah. What, what for you, Michael, is the difference between, uh, as you said, being fluent in the language of vulnerability and sort of making people feel as though you're being vulnerable versus in your mind, sort of the hallmarks of what engenders true vulnerability? Well, uh, I don't have a I don't have a ready answer to this, so it's, let me just fumble my way around it. Let's let's do it. Let's vulnerably fumble our way around. I the think concept of vulnerability. I think one one of the things that drives me a bit nuts about the world of self help is there's too many people talking through too many familiar scripts hmm. about what's going on. So it becomes a performative art rather than a sense of true kind of wading through the muckiness of the psyche or whatever, the, 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 into the darkness. And um, I'm not smart enough to know totally when it's performative or when it's just kind of over-talking and when it's the real thing. But I, I just know there are times when I'm talking through stuff and I'm like, I've said this before. I know this is coming across well. <laughs> it's actually a bit of misdirection mm-hmm. from where I'm, where I'm probably most vulnerable, messy, confused, struggling, and throwing this out here. It's like the magician's going, look at my hand, look in this hand here. And the vulnerability isn't in this hand. It's never in this hand. It's always in this hand over here, but I'm doing something with it going, no, look at the other hand. And I think that's, that's, I just have to manage the fact that I'm quite a slippery character. Mm. And so for me to be vulnerable, um, you know, I'm like, there's a, this, in uh, Ulysses, uh, the Odyssey, when Ulysses is traveling the Mediterranean and he comes across the, uh, I think it's Ulysses, he comes across Proteus, the, the son of the sea god. Mm-hmm. And you have to hold Proteus to get the truth. He's a truth teller. And Proteus is a shape changer as well. So he goes, he's, he's a lizard, he's a dragon, he's a lion, he's fire, he's water, and you kind of got to hold on to it until it, finally he stops trying to change and tells you the truth. And I'm a, I'm a little bit like that as well, without quite the, the Greek god glamour. But, um, but you know, that's, that's what I mean. Hmm. I'm slippery. And I'm good at making it sound like I'm being vulnerable, even if I'm not. Yeah. Yeah. What for you are the hallmarks of true, of true vulnerability? I feel like it's a degree of incoherence because I think it means that you're on the edge of what's known and what's not known. You're in the penumbra, you know, the, the half shadow. And if you're too fluid 
I'm too glib about talking about your vulnerability. I wonder if it's vulnerability. The sense of like being polished is the maybe the antithesis of vulnerability. I I think that's probably part of it. And it's like, you know, it's this performative aspect or this like, look, I'm doing a public confessional thing because I want people to think this about who I am mm-hmm. as opposed to this self-exploratory thing. Mm. Maybe there's something here, I'm not sure, that I'm like, why am I saying this? <laughs> am I saying this just to figure this out for me? Mm-hmm. Or am I saying this to tell other people who I am? Mm-hmm. I find myself easily moving into telling people I'm doing this to, to signal, virtue signal stuff about who I am. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas for me, when I'm really in a space of vulnerability, I'm much less fluent. Mm-hmm. 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 That's fascinating. Yeah. That's fascinating. I'm making it all up as I go along. So I don't know how much of this is actually true, but this is my best guess at the moment. Well, I think that's how we start. You know, we start with a hypothesis, with an idea, with a kernel of this feels true or sounds true. And then we do more research and exploration. We look deeply within ourselves. We say, what does the literature say? And we start to build that, that thesis or that, or that theory. So this is the start. Exactly. Well, there you go. I'm like, it's interesting for me to get back to the source, back to the start of things. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I'm, I'm still thinking a lot about this myself as I'm right in the midst of writing this chapter on vulnerability and, you know, sort of creating a a framework for people to tell their resilience story with greater clarity. And for me, what's come up, it's, it's similar to what you've shared, which is this idea of vulnerability in service of what? Right. Right. So what are we attempting to communicate through the story to, I don't want to use the word achieve. And and I think vulnerability can very much be, I can tell you a story about me Yeah. and it can be in service of us having a deeper relationship and you knowing and seeing me to a greater degree. And I think it can become as you said, performative or a virtue signal, if I sort of bastardize that, it's not the word I really want, but if I create this circuitous route in my head where I say, I'm going to tell you this thing about me so that then you think this is who I am. And that's where I think it becomes convoluted. That's the word I was looking for. Yeah. I went to a conference a few years ago and, um, there was a series of speakers and their, their speakers all had the same structure. This is who I am. I'm really successful. Well, I wasn't always like this. Here's, here's the story of my struggle and my pain. Here's my story of my redemptive act, how I overcame my whatever it was, hardship from childhood and, and the life. And here I am now being successful. You too can be successful like me by the thing that I have to sell you. And it just felt in that left a sour taste in my my mouth because I'm like, this is vulnerability used to upsell people on my product around how you too can find redemption. Mm-hmm. And 
you know, there's a there is absolutely a way where sharing a story of struggle allows people to go. I've got something in connection with people. Because if I say to, if I come on going, I'm Michael and I'm a Rhodes Scholar. None of you are Rhodes Scholars. I'm sort of better than you. That's one way of me showing up. Another way is like, I'm Michael. I have a I have a cleft and palate. You know, I've got a speech impediment. <laughs> this and you know, and here's a story of me getting turned down by a book deal. That's people going, oh, he's kind of human after all. He's, he's interesting. Um, and it's all on the question of in the service of what. You know, mm-hmm. I'm trying to tell these stories so that actually I can elevate my audience and they can hear what I have to say as something that's real for them. Mm-hmm. Such a fine line between when that becomes in the service of me rather than in the service of the people I'm telling the story for. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I love that. There's something really powerful you touched on there that I wanted to highlight too, which is I love that you took this sort of amalgamation of life experiences, you know, that you have. Spoiler alert, ladies and gentlemen, Michael did become a ruled scholar. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> I guess you got that interview after all, too. I, I, I got later, the huh? second interview and somehow <laughs> I, I almost snatched defeat from the jaws of victory, but I managed to do the interview well enough and won the Rhodes Scholarship, went to Oxford, met my wife, fell in love, been together for 30 years now. So it's a good outcome. The rest, as they say, is history. It is. Yeah. And, and we too can become a Rhodes Scholar, go to Oxford, meet okay. our wives. If we would just buy. Just buy my, just buy how my to begin. How, to, how to be a Rhodes Scholar. In seven, <laughs> eight years it's applicable for everybody. Available on my website. <laughs> for easy payments of That's right. something, something, something. Yeah. That's right. That's right. Yeah. What I, what I loved about what you said is you talked about how you could sort of structure your accomplishments and challenges and being the exact same person, right? You didn't like achieve something dramatic and dynamic in this last hour, other than being on this podcast, which arguably is dramatic and dynamic. You talked about how you could make yourself more accessible, more likable, but not for the sake of being liked, for the sake of connection. Whereas if you show up and say, hi, I'm Michael, I'm a Rhodes Scholar, right? That's invulnerable. It's leading with your successes. It's leading with your achievements. And for those of us that are not Rhodes Scholars, myself included, it's a little like, ooh, I feel a little less than, right? When you show up with, you know, cleft lip and palate, surgery as a child, let me talk to you about how I got you know, turned down for this book deal. It's like, oh, now I'm leaning in because we can, I, I, I feel like I can relate to you and connect with you to a greater degree. When when I give a speech and somebody introduces me, I have a pre-written introduction and I get them to say, Michael, Michael was, was banned from his high school graduation for the balloon incident Michael left law school being sued by one of his law professors for defamation. Michael's first professionally published piece of work was a Harlequin romance slash Mills and Boone short story. Like I do a lot of things that deliberately lower my status because I actually, I already have high status because I'm the speaker I'm on the stage. I'm a tall, straight, white, overeducated dude. I've already got, I've got all the status and all the privilege. I've got to find ways of reducing that. 
so that I invite the audience to raise their status as I lower mine so that they're more engaged with the teaching that I have for them. They're more, they'll, they'll hear more of what I have to say. That's beautiful. Well, Michael, I could talk to you all afternoon. I know. I can't believe we're going already. <laughs> I know. I know. So yeah. for those of us who definitely want to keep up with you, keep learning from you, keep consuming yeah. your incredible writing, how can people connect with you beyond this podcast? Yeah. And where can they get how to begin? Yes. Thank you for asking. Um, my, my general website's the best place to go. So it is mbs.works. And if you go to mbs.works, that then gives you access to newsletters, podcasts, and book bonuses, and social media handles, and the whole shebang. So, you know, there's details and bonuses around how to begin at howtobegin.com, but just go to the hub, mbs.works. Beautiful. We're gonna we're gonna go to there right away. Go there right away. Right exactly. away. Right away. And you too can become a road scholar. It's as simple as that. Just sign yes. up for me. <laughs> <laughs> it's not too late. It's not, it might be a little too late, but no matter. <laughs> <laughs> well, Michael, I have just had so much fun with you today. I learned things about you. I mean, you and I have known each other for a couple of years now. Yeah, we're both yeah. part of the the Marshall Goldsmith you know, 100 coaches, top 100 coaches globally. And, you know, having been in this learning, training, coaching, I've even known of your work and and box of crayons and your tremendous success and insights um, for even longer. And so it's just, you know, it's such a pleasure every time we speak, you have tremendously insightful and thoughtful perspectives and questions. I love that you turn things around on me. And I am so, so grateful that we've gotten this time together and just delighted to get to learn from you. Thanks, Tara Marie. It's been really nice talking to you. Thanks for having me on the show. Ah, what a joy and a pleasure. Thank you for attending this episode of Flourish or Fold Stories of Resilience. This is Dr. Taryn Marie, and I just love talking to Michael Bungay-Stanier. What an incredible person. I love the idea based on Maria Rayner Rilke's work about being defeated by ever greater things. One thing that stands out for me in this podcast is Michael's ability to choose to back himself. When his best-selling book, The Coaching Habit, that sold over a million copies almost wasn't published because his publisher turned it down. Well, I'd love to hear from you what stood out for you from this episode and your impressions. So please leave us a five-star review, download this episode, and share Flourish or Fold Season 2 with your friends, family members, friendly grocery store clerk, pet groomer, and anyone else that you think would benefit from these lessons, from these peak behind the curtain of resilience. Until next time, this is Dr. Taryn Marie.